Hi. All right. So tonight we get to have kind of this culminating conversation, right? Everything else we've talked about thus far in the week all adds up to the same thing. In fact, every moment of human history, the reason that the stars are in place, the reason that galaxies were ever formed, the reason that there's subatomic particles, the reason that you and I are breathing, the reason that there is sky and hydrogen and oxygen and everything else in the entire universe exists for one truth. The truth that you're going to hear tonight. And I think some of us, if we're honest, our assumption is that depending on what we came into this week thinking, depending on what your worldview was, or depending on how you choose to live your life, you might think that this Christian gospel is for Christian people, right? This is, this is good for you guys who call yourself Christians. This is good for you people who believe in this stuff. But me, I'm just not, I'm not really convinced of it. And so I think I'll have a different way of being. And I, this doesn't really concern me. The, the Bible, if true, which it is, says that each and every one of us have a divine appointment with the king of the universe. The Bible says that when we die, each and every one of us, no matter what your background is, no matter what your nationality is, no matter what your skin color is, no matter what, no, no matter what faith you profess today, every single one of us will die. And when we die, every single one of us, including you, will meet the God of the universe face to face. And you're not going to meet the God of Mormonism. You're not going to meet the God of Islam. You're not going to meet the God of other belief systems. You're not going to meet Buddha. You're not going to meet any of these other people who have gone before you. You are going to meet the king of the universe who manifests himself on planet earth in the person of Jesus that is revealed through the Christian scriptures. The reason I tell you this is not because I grew up in a home where people forced me to believe these things. When I was your age, I had a hard time believing in God at all. When I was in high school, I would have considered myself an atheist. I didn't believe in God whatsoever. Then I did the really hard, diligent work of trying to prove that God didn't exist, and something kind of weird happened. The more that I aimed to try to disprove God, the more that I realized that this book is accurate. It's the same book that was written back then. We have the words of God living and breathing. We're holding his words in our hand. This book has been tested and tried over the ages. People have tried to snuff it out. Hundreds of leaders and empires, 5,000 people a year, even now are murdered because they carry this book around internationally. And because of the truths that are found in this book, everything in our universe has changed and shifted. I just want you to, to not think that the only people that are gonna be culpable or responsible or the only ones who are gonna have to give an account for their sin or have a cup of wrath in front of them are Christians or people who buy into the whole God thing. This is a responsibility of every heart of every person who has ever lived. You will meet the God of this book face to face. You will meet him. And on that day, it's not gonna take an IQ test you're not going to be given a trivia test. You're not going to see how fast you can find Bible verses. He's not going to look at your church attendance. On that day, there's only one question that is going to be asked of you. And the ironic thing is you won't be the one answering it. On that day, like we saw at Theochristus this morning, you will stand silent. Because the question that's going to be asked about you on your day of divine appointment will not be asked to you, but it will be asked about you. The question will be posed to Jesus. And the question posed to Jesus will be, Jesus, is that your son? Jesus, is that your daughter? 
or is that your enemy? You don't get to say anything. So you don't get to give some cutesy like, okay, here's what happened. I was confused or I didn't take it seriously or uh, I, I believed in my heart that I would believe these things when I got older, right? That's what a lot of us think at our age. When I get older, I'm gonna start taking this whole God thing seriously. But then I died at a younger age and so it's not really my responsibility. We have all of it worked out, right? You sit in the shower sometimes before you have a hard conversation with a friend or before you fight with one of your friends and you, right, you're in the shower, you're like, oh yeah, well, you know, no one can hear you, but still, you're like getting it. You're like, yeah, well, you, you shouldn't have ever kissed Jennifer. And you're like, yeah, you got you. You know what I mean? Like, oh, no. everyone here named Jennifer? Ouch. But we do that. And I think some of us are convinced because we don't actually know who God is, we don't really know the character of God. We believe in kind of the sound bites and the extremes of culture. We believe in the, the characterizations of God. We believe in the cartoon versions of God that we're going to get there and we're going to see him and he's going to be chill. And he's going to go, hey, you didn't follow me. And you're going to go, I should have, huh? And he's going to go, yeah, go ahead. There's, there's nowhere in scripture where that's the interaction. <laughs> that's just not the way it plays out. And so I, it feels almost like as a missionary and as someone pleading because I love you, I'm coming to you tonight with this message. It's the most, it's the most important message you're ever gonna hear. Not the most important sermon. I'm the most, I'm the mo most important preacher. And some of you, a lot of you guys, you've already heard this message before, but maybe you weren't paying attention to it. And it's the same message in all of Christianity. It's the same message that was taught 2,000 years ago. It's never changed. That's the beauty of God. His character doesn't alter. It doesn't shift. It doesn't change. But now you sit here in this chapel in the year 2022 in Meadow Ranch, and the God of the universe has divinely appointed that you're here. You're not here by accident. You're like, well, I'm only here because someone backed out last minute and I got put in. That's the divine appointment that you're here. And tonight I want you to ask the question, how do you think that your divine appointment with God is going to go? And there's only two ways that it goes. One, you are called son or daughter. God says, enter into my presence forever. Come in and find rest. Or God's gonna say, I do not know you. Away from me, evildoer. You will go to the place of the weeping and the gnashing of teeth for all of eternity. The Bible makes it real clear. There isn't a third direction. You don't even get to speak at your own trial because you're guilty. So John chapter eight. Jesus interacts with this woman caught in adultery. He says, I do not condemn you, but you are guilty. Romans, or John chapter nine, uh, Jesus starts talking about spiritual blindness. He says that a lot of people, and he's talking to us too, what, is it, what does it mean to be spiritually blind? It means we don't even understand how messed up our condition is. We wouldn't believe someone if they told us how sinful we were. John chapter 10, Jesus continues the story. We're leading up to Jesus' death. We're going all the way through the rest of the book of John, all the way to chapter 18 tonight. So I'm gonna walk you through it. John chapter 10, Jesus uses this metaphor and he says, I am a good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. And then my sheep know me and they know my voice. And then he says in John 10 verse 10, the thief, Satan has come to deceive, to steal, kill and destroy. Jesus says, but I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. John chapter 11, we see the absolute painstaking depths of sin as one of Jesus' best friends dies. His name's Lazarus. Lazarus is dead in a tomb 
For more than three days, Jesus then shows up on the scene and he calls Lazarus out of the tomb, showing that he has the power to make dead things live again. This starts freaking people out. You see, only God can make dead things live again. And so people are, are starting to get faced with this controversy. Do we follow this guy as God or do we reject him as a blasphemer? Do we follow him as God or do we reject him as a heretic? Do we follow him as God or do we re reject him as a treasonous traitor who claims to be one with the master, but he's not? John chapter 12. Jesus rides into Jerusalem. It's the beginning of his Passion Week. You know what the word passion, where we get the word passion from? The passion of the Christ? Paseo, which means suffering. The suffering of Jesus begins. He enters into Jerusalem. And here's what you guys gotta catch. When Jesus enters in Jerusalem, there's like 12 different gates you can enter into into Jerusalem. The sheep gate, the dung gate, the lion gate, all these other gates. There's one gate that's reserved for military conquests. There's one gate that's reserved for kings. It's the kings that would go to the east and win their battles and they would mount up on a stallion and they would ride in through East Gate and all the people would cheer them. They would hail to Caesar and this, was, this gate was reserved for royalty. I'm gonna let you guess which gate Jesus walks in on. That one. He saddles up a donkey of all things and he rides in through the East Gate and so the people once again are going, okay, so you say you have the power to make dead things live again. You've said that you can forgive sins. You're making blind people see again in John chapter nine. And now you're riding in through the king's gate. Are you saying that you're king? Jesus is upsetting the apple cart in everyone's mind. He's basically saying, I'm gonna put a decision in your head. You're either gonna follow me as king of the universe or you're gonna crucify me as a blasphemer, but there will be no third direction. John chapter 13, Jesus goes up into the upper room with his disciples and he sits there and he shows them the depths of servitude. You see, it was the lowliest servant's job to wash the feet of the people who had walked in to eat dinner. In that day and age, you didn't have tables and chairs. The table that you had, not like a modern day table, it would be a, a few feet off the ground and you would recline around the table, which means if someone was sitting next to you, their feet would be really close to you. Well, in that day and age, what was their mode of transportation? Animals, right? So meant, that meant all through the Jerusalem streets, and this was during Passover, so the city has, swells, has swelled to perhaps one and a half, two million people in this small podunk city in Jerusalem. And they brought in their camels, and they brought in their sheep, and they brought in their goats and their livestock for, for auction and for sacrifice, and they've ridden their donkeys through the streets. So what is covering all of the Jerusalem streets? Poop. There's poop everywhere, which means that these 12 men, as they're walking through the streets of Jerusalem, their toes and their feet are covered in the dust and the fecal matter of animals. And each and every one of these disciples walks into the upper room and sits down because no servant was found. So they're all sitting there going, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna wash feet. That is the lowliest servant's job. That's not what I'm gonna do. I'm not gonna touch Thomas's feet. They're nasty, they're disgusting. So they all, because they thought that they were above the station of lowly servants, sat down and then Jesus walks in the room and it says, he takes off his outer robe, which is very significant. He takes off his godliness. The book of Philippians chapter two says, he did not consider equality with God something to be, something to be held onto, but instead made himself nothing. Philippians 2 says he took the form of a servant and being found in human likeness, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. So we watch Jesus when no one else is willing to do the hard work 
of cleaning the most desperately gross part of the disciples. It says he puts on a servant's towel, he kneels down, and the God of the universe in human flesh wipes and washes the feet of his disciples. Jesus shows the links that he's gonna go to to serve us, and it's not even the depths. It's gonna be even worse because he's on his way to the cross where he is going to be crucified as a traitor on our behalf. John chapter 14, Jesus starts talking and he says, I'm gonna go somewhere you can't go. Thomas says, well, how are we gonna know how to get there? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. John chapter 15, well, how are we gonna remain to the end of this life? Jesus says 12 times in 17 verses, remain in me, remain in me, remain in my word, remain in the obedience, remain, 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 remain. He uses an analogy of a vine and a branch. You must remain in Jesus if you want to stick through to the end. John chapter 16, Jesus says this really crazy phrase. He says, I'm gonna die and I'm gonna leave, but I'm gonna send one greater than me. And everyone asks, who's greater than you? Jesus doesn't mean there's someone who's greater than me in power. There's greater, someone greater than me in divinity. It means that Jesus, because he was saving mankind, took on human flesh. He was incarnated. That's the big fancy word. It's from the, the root word carne, which means meat, right? You ever had carne asada? Incarnation means Jesus put on carne. He put on meat and became man. Jesus, before he became man, was just spirit, like the Father and the Holy Spirit. They didn't have physical bodies. They didn't have hands and feet. Jesus became man to take away the sin of mankind. So Jesus has a physical body. He says, but I am going to go to the Father, and I'm going to send you the Spirit who can dwell in each and every one of you. So when I leave, I'm going to send the gift of the Holy Spirit to all of you. John chapter 17 Jesus prays on our behalf to his father. And he finds himself in the desperate situation of the Garden of Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane in the original language means the olive press. Jesus goes to a, um, to a hillside that you can visit today. I've been here. It's, it's one of the most hallowed places, I think, in all of Jerusalem. Because you're sitting in the very place where Jesus cries out this prayer. It says, Jesus was sweating drops of blood. He was so intensely bothered and troubled because he knew what was to come. And it wasn't simply that he was going to be crucified. It was that he st he stood what stood before him was a cup of wrath that you and I deserved. Jesus looked at the cup of wrath, which was the full justice and the full wrath of the God of the universe, poured out without any mercy on the unsaved on the unrepentant, Jesus knew in order to bring enemies into sonship, in order to adopt enemies, he must be treated like the enemy. That is the only way to preserve God's justice while also revealing God's mercy, love, and grace. So Jesus prays a simple prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane in the olive press itself. He says, Father, if there's any way for this cup to pass from me, let it be so. But not as I will, but as your will be done. The Father's response simply is, there is no other way. There's only one way, and it is through the traitor's death on a cross that these people, you, me, everyone sitting here can be saved. John chapter 18, Jesus goes before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate's a Roman prefect. He's a Roman governor. He's got tons of power. And you, we see this really weird showdown. We saw it today with... Uh, uh, What's the governor's name in the play? 
Brutus, I love that guy. Brutus, right? And you got fluffy Higgles bottom over here. And this is the high priest Caiaphas. So the Jews, the leader of the Jews is this high priest named Caiaphas. And she's over here and she's like, get him, get him, get him. The problem is the Jews are subservient to Rome because Jerusalem and the Jews are in a vassal state under Roman authority. So just like we talked about before with the woman caught in adultery, could the Jews sentence someone to death? No, they needed Rome's permission. So Fluffy P. Higglesbottom, Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin, go over to Pontius Pilate and they go, hey, this guy's starting, to, this, this guy's starting some stuff. Like he rode in through the East Gate. He has said he has the power to make dead things live again. He's been doing some crazy junk. He's been wiping people's feet. It's gross. But whatever, he said he's the only way to God. He said, before Abraham was, I am. This guy claimed to be greater than our father Abraham. And then he said, if you destroy this temple, I will rebuild it in three days. You see, he said he was going to destroy our sacred temple, even though Jesus was talking about his very own body. Pontius Pilate, he's kind of freaked out by Jesus. He doesn't like him. Creeps him out, right? Pontius Pilate's wife, it says in the text, said, Pontius, don't mess with this guy. It's one thing I learned after 10 years of marriage. When your wife has a weird feeling about someone, you go with it, right? And this is what his wife said. His wife was like, this guy creeps me out. Don't mess with him. Let him go. He didn't do anything. Turns out, historically speaking, she could not have been more accurate. You know what I mean? Like, he really blew this one. So, but Brutus says, you know what? I, uh, I'm going to wash my hands of this man's sin. In fact, I'm going to give everyone one more chance. I'm going to bring out a known murderer named Barabbas, and I'm going to bring forward Jesus, who, in my opinion, hasn't done anything wrong. But that's just me. As it is tradition, I'm going to let one of these prisoners go as a Passover gift to all you people. You can either have Barabbas, remember, murderer, terrible, gross, creepy, don't want him back in our society, or Jesus, who, and I can't stress this enough, I don't really think has done anything wrong, right? Rome believes in a polytheistic version of gods, so the fact that this short, insignificant carpenter says he's God, who cares? We're Rome, we're powerful. So while you Jews are all bent out of shape, I couldn't care less. I'd rather not have a murderer on the streets, let this guy go free, whatever. And besides, my wife said, leave him alone. And the people start to chant, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. And he, they can't calm him down. So Pontius Pilate has to eventually go, okay, whatever you vote, I'm gonna do. But if you vote Barabbas, I wash my hands of this man's blood. And you do whatever you want to him. They call for Barabbas. Barabbas gets set free. And here's Jesus. And Pontius Pilate goes, well, then what do you want me to do with Jesus? And the crowd begins to chant, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Crucifixion was a Roman version of torture that was meant for the worst of the worst criminals. In Jesus' predicament, because he was not just a traitor to Rome, saying that he was king, he was also blasphemer to the Jews. He claimed to be the king of kings, which is to tear down Rome. He also claimed to be the Lord of lords. He claimed to be God himself, which upset the Jewish ruling class. So guess what happened to him? He gets flogged. He gets beat 39 times with a cat of nine tails. That would have been little whips made out of leather. On the end of that was bone and tooth and glass and shards of metal. And they would have dug it into his back 39 times. And every single one of them tearing the flesh, pulling out veins, ripping apart his back as he screams in agony. Then, to torture him even further, 
because he claimed to be the king of the Jews, the king of the universe, one with the master himself, they say, do you know what kings normally wear? Crowns. So they take a crown of thorns. There's actually a bush today you can go to in, the, in, in Jerusalem. There's a, it's, a, it's a very common plant called the crown of thorns bush. It's the crown of thorns that they would have used for Jesus' crucifixion. And, and don't think like rose thorns, you know, like the cute little ones that you go, mm, I felt that. The crown of thorns, when you go to Jerusalem, the crown of thorns are this long each. And they're long and they're pointed. And if you walk near that, like if you fell in that bush, you would have serious, maybe life-threatening injuries. It was awful. And they took that and they used special gloves to twist together a crown. And then they set it on his head and they take a stick and they beat it into his skull. So Jesus hasn't even been put on a cross yet. He's been flogged. He's been whipped. He's had that pressed into his skull and then he's got to start his journey. And remember, his back is open. His wounds are festering. Everything is exposed. He's stripped totally naked. Now, in our modern, in our modern art, we don't allow that to happen because we have deep reverence for Jesus. But in a Jewish mindset, particularly a Jewish rabbi, absolutely, the king of the universe has now been taken down to nudity. He's being spit on. His full manhood is on display. People are mocking him. They're teasing him. They're laughing at him. There's a reason that's important. It's not for shock value. Why did Jesus experience humiliation, torture, pain, and shame? Because guess what I deserved? Pain, torture, humiliation, and shame. Was Jesus guilty of treason? Am I guilty of treason? Are you guilty of treason? So what was Jesus doing? He was literally substituting himself where you and I deserve to stand. Every time he got whipped, he did not get whipped because he did something wrong. He got whipped because you did something wrong. Every nail that was driven into his hand was not because he did something wrong. It's because I did something wrong when they brought him up on the cross and his cross was being brought and then he fell into the hole and he felt the very bones in his hands rip apart as that thud hit and he begins to suffocate. That's how people died in crucifixion. A nail driven between their hands, a nail driven through the heels on their feet, driven through the ankles. One nail driven straight through everything. You sit here in suspension and you have to keep pressing up. And every time you want to take a breath, because of the weight of your shoulders on your chest, your lungs become concave. And in order to take a breath, you have to push up on the nails in your feet. You have to apply intense pressure just to take a breath. And he's doing this over and over and over and over again. And with each and every one of these inhales and exhales, this is not because of his crime. It is because of mine. You see, the gospel doesn't teach that Jesus went on the cross to show us simply that he's a really good person or he's willing to endure a lot even though he wasn't guilty. And so you should do the same thing. It's not Christus exemplar where, where Jesus went, look, if I can undergo hard things, so can you. That is not the point of the cross. The point of the cross, when you see the depiction, when you visualize it in your head, I want you to keep that in your skull. Keep it in the forefront of your mind and then I want you to picture yourself because that was actually, that was the proper recipient of Jesus' crucifixion was me.
And that, my friends, was the most merciful part of Jesus' execution. Everything I just said, I don't think is the reason that Jesus was sweating drops of blood in the garden and was freaked out to go to the cross. It's what happens next. See, what happens next, Jesus on the cross cries out. He cries out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What just happened? For all of eternity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the three parts of the Trinity and the Christian orthodoxy, they've all been in community forever. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in this divine dance since for an infinity past. And for the first time, Jesus feels within his spirit an absence of his Father. Could you imagine experiencing intense, infinite, perfect love for all of eternity and then it turns off? Jesus bellows on the cross and he screams out, where have you gone? The Father's absent from me. My God, my God, why have you left me here? I'm all alone now. Do you want to know why Jesus was left all alone? Do you want to know why Jesus was forsaken? Do you want to know why Jesus experienced the reality where there was no God? Because that's what I deserved. You see, we, 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 we make much of this idea of hell and we make much of the characterizations of hell and every time we see a picture of hell in cartoons or whatever, it's like Satan's running around and he's got like a leather red suit on and he's enjoying himself and every single part of that is meticulously incorrect, biblically speaking. First to understand that Satan doesn't rule hell. Guess who rules hell? God does. Satan didn't make hell. Satan is not God's equal but opposite. Satan is a created being, limited in his power, and his future is the lake of fire. He will not make it out alive. Satan was created for, this, for Satan, or hell was created for Satan and his demons to be punished forever. It was created for all Satan's demons, anyone who rejects God, to spend an eternity where they don't have to suffer being in God's presence. You see, we get really bent out of shape because we go, how could God send people to hell? That's not what happens. The life of every person who's ever lived either shouts, I want God or I want nothing to do with God. We either say, Lord, I want more of you forever. I need you, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. My one defense, my righteousness is you. I want you forever. And for that heart, and for that repentant spirit, God has made heaven for us to enjoy him forever. There are other hearts that say, God, forget you. Your cross was pointless. I don't want anything to do with you. This whole religion thing is stupid. Stop with this. This, this, this bait and switch. You're just berating me. You're bludgeoning me over the head with this. I don't want anything to do with God. What is hell? Hell is giving those people exactly what they asked for, what they've begged for. I want nothing to do with you, God. God simply says, your will be done. Here's the problem. The problem is that we currently live on planet Earth where the beauty and the grace and the common love of God is apparent to all of us. This is important. The common love of God or the common grace of God on planet Earth means that the Bible says every good and perfect gift that we experience as humans is a gift from God, it's his loving kindness, and it's calling us, it's, it's pleading with us, it's a token of God's love for us that's calling us to repent and turn to him. Every good and perfect gift on planet earth is because God is here. What do I mean by good and perfect gift? I mean, 
If you're breathing, if you enjoy something, if you eat a good dinner, if you laugh with your friends, if you feel a sense of safety or encouragement or generosity, if you experience friendship, if you experience love, all of those things, you're borrowing from the common grace of God. Every good thing in your life that has ever happened, every breath you take, every meal you've ever had, every joy you've ever felt, every pleasure you've ever experienced, every good conversation you've ever had, every sense of peace, every sense of comfort is all a gift from God. And do you know, you wanna know what the Bible says? Why you have all those things? Because God, the loving Father, is calling you. He's saying, look at all the great gifts I've given you. Come to me, all who are weak and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Every good and perfect gift, is, it's, it's a love letter written to you saying, come to me. I want you to know the giver of these great gifts. But you see, we think that all those things exist independent of God, that we're somehow owed those things. So let me ask you a question then. If every good and perfect gift comes from God and everything that we experience is part of God's common grace, and if hell is a place where God is not, and the people that go there are those who say, I want nothing to do with God, then what would hell be like? It would be void of all of God's common grace, which means... In, in lieu of pleasure and joy and comfort and peace and rationality and, uh, and laughter and friendship, these are all the things of God. It would be void of those, which means there would be no peace, no comfort, no joy, no laughter, no rationality, no sense of understanding. There would be no encouragement, no future, no hope, nothing. That's what hell is. And it's that eternally. And so Jesus experiences on the cross absolute and total hell. Why? Because that's what my sin has cost me. He says the word, God, where have you gone? In other words, God, I feel your absence. Do you want to know why? Because my sin and your sin deserves the absence of God. Jesus endured everything every aspect of suffering and punishment that I was supposed to undergo because he was drinking a cup that was not meant for him. It was meant for me. He's drinking a cup that was not meant for him. It was meant for you. Not you all people. You don't all share one cup. You get a cup, you get a cup, you get a cup, you get a cup. You get a cup. Everyone has their own individual cup. And everyone's cup is foaming to the brim of God's wrath and everyone's cup will be drank on judgment day. Everyone's cup will be empty after your divine appointment with God. The question is, who drinks it? And the answer to the question of who drinks your cup has everything to do with how you respond to the gospel. I'm gonna finish this conversation and I want you to follow with me in your Bibles, okay? I need you to turn to the book of Romans. Here's what I'm gonna do. I've, I've done it to you all week and I'm not gonna stop now. I want you to see firsthand, if you're thinking to yourself tonight, okay, I get it. I'm guilty of sin. My cup of wrath sits before me. I want to turn it over to God. I want to follow him. I want to be his son. I want to be his daughter. I don't want to be an object of his wrath. I want to be an object of his love. I want to surrender my life. I want to pass my cup across the table and have Jesus drink it on my behalf and follow him forever. I'm going to walk you through exactly what the Bible says in order to receive that and to push your cup across the table and let Jesus take the punishment for your sins. The only appropriate question to understanding how weighty and how depraved we are as people and how messed up our sin is, is to say, 
Who can fix this? The answer is Jesus, and the solution is the gospel. Here's the gospel. I want you to open your Bibles to the book of Romans, chapter 1. Let's say right now, chapel just ended, okay? And you caught me out on the deck over here in front of uh, human beings, right? Over here in, in, the, in, in Meadow Lawn. And you said, Chris, 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 Chris. I want that. I'm guilty of my sin and I've never turned my life over to Jesus. I have not given him my cup of wrath. He has not given me his righteousness in return. I want that. I really, really want that. I want to pretend right now that it's just you and me in this conversation and I want to walk you through it. Pretend it's just you and me sitting down at a table and I want to show you exactly what scripture says on how you can be saved. The first part of the gospel is this, Romans 1, beginning at verse 19 through 21. says this, For what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. Since... For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities and his divine nature have been clearly seen from what has been made so that man is without excuse. That's a, really, that's a really high and lofty way of saying this. Here's what the Bible's saying. Here's how the gospel starts. The gospel starts with a simple truth. There is a God and he's made himself plain to you. Don't believe any of this nonsense of modern scientists. By the way, the, the majority of all modern scientists believe in God. Did you guys know that? I didn't know that. 55% of all modern scientists believe that there is a creator, there's an intelligent designer. We're not told that in schools. It is what it is, right? But here's what Paul says. Paul begins the gospel by saying, there's a God and he has made himself obvious. What do you mean by obvious? Well, let me help you out. Let's say you and I are walking through the woods and we, and we happen upon this chapel, okay? We walk into this chapel and I go, whoa, man, what do you think made this chapel? And you were like, you mean who? And I was like, no, 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 no. What do you think made this chapel? What, what kind of an accident took place? What kind of a random series of events? What kind of, what kind of a haphazard thing happened in order to make this chapel? Because you see this? This is phenomenal. Oh my gosh, look at this. Here's what I think. There's like a hundred billion little lights right here. What do you think made this? And you're like, bro, maybe it was like a designer, like maybe it was like a, I don't know, like a, like a video guy. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I didn't ask who did it. I said, what did it? Because here's my thesis. Yes, 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 yes. I think there was a, some kind of a tornado up here at some point. And it started blowing about trees. And then there was a beaver who was in cahoots. He was in cahoots with the tornado. And the, the, the pieces of wood started to form. And that's why you see this made of wood? It's because it's that beaver. That beaver was here. And then, oh, and then, okay, how do we get this? Uh, fireflies. Fireflies stuck. They're stuck. They're trapped. And they can't, oh, but whoa, look at these big lights. But they're not really lights. It's the power of the sun. And somehow, in the middle of that tornado, something happened. At some point, in that crazy response, if you've got a brain in your skull, you would go, bro, are you high? Right? <laughs> And look, I, I, get, I get like wanting attention and I get like wanting to answer this in a dumb way, but there's not a person in here, if your life was on the line or if a million dollars was on the line, and I said, what do you think made this chapel? Was it a person or was it a random accident? 
you would all say, someone did this, someone did this. We understand that. I was walking in the woods with my son Brady, who wears glasses, and he's four years old. And we saw in a tree, C plus R with a heart around it. And my four-year-old said, who wrote that? Do you want to know why? Because intelligence and design and complexity requires a designer, requires a mind, requires intentionality. So friend, listen to me. Here's what Paul's saying. Paul's saying if you look at the universe and think it was an accident, you're beyond help. Okay? Imagine this scenario. You're at a cabin in the woods. Your friends are supposed to show up and they didn't. It's now midnight. You're all alone. The lights go out. You've got your cell phone. You've got your little flashlight on it. But you see that little red mark? It's 20% less. You only have 20% battery left. You're freaking out, but you're also hungry. So you pull out some alphabet cereal. You know that alphabet cereal, like the, the little colored cereal? All the letters of the alphabet in it. And you're like eating that stuff. You're really freaked out. There's like creaks and weird things going on in the cabin. And you've just got that single light and you're eating your alphabet cereal. And you hear a noise. And so you move quickly. And as you do, you bump the table. And the table falls over and the alphabet cereal pours out all over the table. And you're like, oh no. You're like, I better go clean this up. So you go get a vacuum. You go get a vacuum. And when you come back, on the table is written in alphabet cereal, don't go to sleep tonight. So that is this, D-O-N-T-G-O-T-O-S-L-E-E-P-T-O-N-I-G-H-T. Okay, so that's 21 letters-ish, whatever, 26 letters. I don't really know. I didn't count super well because I was, I was trying to apost- apostrophes and I don't think you should count those because I don't think they have those in alphabets. Are there apostrophes? Maybe like broken eyes? Okay, um, but that would be a series of, let's say, 16 letters. And there's not a single person in here, if you've got a brain in your skull, that would sit down and just with 16 letters lined up, that one of us wouldn't go, I'm out, bro. Right? You're calling the police. You're done. None of us would ever sit down and go, "Ah, I must have bumped that in a really cool way. (laughs) And you, none of you would certainly bump it again and see if you could get something else to be spelled out. Right? Right? And friends, listen, that's 16 letters in form. That is all it takes for even the dumbest mind to go, someone was here. And if your brain requires you to look at 16 letters in alignment and say someone was here, your genetic code is made up of hundreds of thousands of millions of parts of A's and T's and G's and C's. It's a computer code that makes more of you. For you to see me right now, the number of cones and rods and pupil and everything in your eye to see this, you have more neurological connections happening in your brain than the entire county of Los Angeles combined. The man who actually mapped out the human genome is named Francis Collins, Sir Francis Collins. He won a Nobel Prize for his ability to figure out the human code in every one of our cells. And when he finished the code, he wrote a book called The Language of God. He's a professing Christian, and he said, no one can look at DNA and not think that someone was here. So for us to look at 16 letters and go, an intelligence made this, and then to look at yourself, which is infinitely more complicated, or dang it, to look at this one board or this one room and go, this all could be an accident. If your brain won't let you take that leap of faith to think this was all an accident, you can't possibly look at yourself and think you were because you're infinitely more complicated than that. 
You're not 16 letters. You're hundreds of billions of code lined up perfectly to make more of you, more cells of you every single second. And every 13 years, not a single cell that used to exist in your body is there anymore. Every 13 years, you are actually a brand new person. There's not a part of you that was there 13 years ago. That's the way that your body works. You don't even think about it. You don't even process it. You didn't ask it to. It just does it randomly. The gospel starts with this simple truth. Paul says, there is a God and you're not gonna get away with the excuse someday that if God wanted me to believe in him, he should have made himself clear. The Bible says, that's not gonna fly. God's gonna look at you and go, made myself clear? Did you see the human genome? Have you seen a baby in utero? Do you understand seahorses? Do you understand that there's dimensions of subatomic particles that you will never figure out because I'm just a lot smarter than anyone is ever going to be? God, you're not gonna get away with the excuse on your day of divine appointment. I didn't get it because he didn't make it obvious. The Bible says, if you ask God, he's made himself ridiculously obvious. That's point one of the gospel. Point number two, Romans chapter three, two pages to your right or whatever it is, look up Romans chapter three. Here's the next part of the gospel. You're saying, Chris, what must I do to be saved? First of all, know that there is a God. Secondly, Romans chapter three. Romans chapter three and then verse 10 says this. There is no one who is right with God, not even one. Your Bible's gonna use a word. It's a churchy word, righteous. There is no one righteous, not even one. That word means right with God. That's saying all of us in our natural state are enemies with God. There is no one right with God. Everyone is at war with the creator. Everyone, because of our mutiny and the rebellion of our heart, we were born, the Bible says, we were born into iniquity, conceived into sin. There is no one who by nature is right with God, which means we all need a solution. We all need an external help. That's the second part of the gospel. The third part is this. Turn further to the right to Romans chapter six. So far we have this. You're sitting across the table from me. Christopher, what must I do to be saved? I would say, friend, first of all, no, there's a God. He's not hiding himself. Number two, you have a bad case. You are an enemy of God. That must be solved. But it gets worse before it gets better. You say, I'm a sinner. So what? What's that big deal? Romans 6, 23 says this. For the wages of sin is death. Okay, let me ask you a question. If you work at a job, you earn what's called a wage, okay? So if I work at um, a store and I make $10 an hour and I work for 10 hours, what is my wage for that week? $100, good math. That's what a wage is. A wage is what I've earned, a wage is something that I've earned. So the Bible uses this language really in particularly. The wages of your sin. In other words, hey, you have something you deserve. Great. You worked a job your whole life. You've worked a job. And here's the wages that you've earned. What is it? <coughs> death. Bummer. That word death there does not just mean your physical body dies. The word death there is talking about eternal separation from God in a place called hell. Here's what you've earned. Here's what your life has earned. Here's what your sin has earned you. Hell. For the wages of your sin, the earnings of your life so far is hell. And then this conjunction comes in. <coughs> what's, the next, what's the next word in your Bible? <coughs> but, that's an important word. Wages are something that we've earned. What's the next verse say? For the wages of sin is death, but the gift. Okay, so listen to this distinction. 
We have earned hell. When do you, uh, what's your name? Caitlin, are you sure? Why was there a question at the end of that? It's Caitlin, if that's okay with you. Um, Caitlin, when do you typically get gifts? What's the two most important times you get gifts in a year? For your birthday and Christmas. Okay. Uh, do you feel like you've done anything on either of those days to have earned a gift? Like your birthday, it's a celebration of a time that you've revolved around the sun while being outside of your mother's womb. Like, do you think you've earned something for that? No, that's some trash. In fact, on that day, your mom should probably get a gift because it was probably a lot more difficult for her than it was for you. And most of us, in fact, all of us don't even remember our own birthday, and yet we get presents for it every time. For some reason, this third rock around the sun revolves. We go, it did it again. Someone give me a gift, right? <laughs> Doesn't make any sense. Guys, Christmas is crazier. Here's a gift. How come? I don't know. It's Jesus' birthday. So I thought you should get a gift, right? <laughs> When do we get gifts? Do we earn gifts? If we earn gifts, what would we call them? Wages. If we earn gifts, we would call them wages. A gift is by nature and by definition free. It is by nature and definition something unmerited, undeserved. So what is the Bible saying in this one verse? Your natural status and your life and your sin, which you commit every day, has earned you hell. But the gift of God, which must be what? Free is life. And when the Bible uses the word death, it means hell. And when it talks about the word eternal life, it means heaven, forever with God in his presence, rejoicing for all of eternity You've earned hell, but you've been given the gift of heaven. If, if, Romans 5 verse 8 comes in next. You're going to turn one page back to the left. Romans 5 verse 8. Here's what we got so far in the gospel. There is a God. He's not hiding himself. You, we have all sinned. Everyone's at war with God. And that war with Godness, that life we've lived has earned us hell. But God has earned with his life heaven. So, Romans 5 verse 8 says this, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you skip down to verse 13, right there, what, what word does it call us in verse 13? Can anyone read it for me? What's verse 13? What's Romans 5 13 say? You have your Bible? Here, let me see it. Here's what it says. Beginning verse 10. For if while we were God's, help me out, enemies, for if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through his death, how much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only this, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we received reconcili <coughs> Reconciliation. I should have said 10, not 13. I'm sorry. We are his enemies. And it says this, God loved us so much. It doesn't say, and God felt so deeply for us that he wrote poetry about it. 
It didn't say, but God loved us so much, he thought about it daily and wrote a song. It doesn't say God loved us so much, but he was impotent to do anything. It says God demonstrated. That means he worked. His love moved him. We find here the motivation of the gospel is the love of God. We might go, why would God drink my cup of wrath? Why would Jesus endure crucifixion? Why would he possibly be humiliated, stripped naked and pinned to a tree, suffocating to death, ruptured his back, everything ripped apart, on display for all to shame him? Why would God do that? Romans 5 verse 8 tells us the motivation of the heart of God. But God demonstrates his own love. Listen, friend. If we ever ask the question of God, God, why do you love me? It's the same thing if one of my kids walked up to me and said, Dad, why do you love me? It's almost a ridiculous question. Like if, if my son, Brady, walks up to me and he goes, Dad, why do you love me? I would go, uh. My answer isn't, well, you're really helpful. <laughs> no. Well, you're, you've been chipping in economically lately. Do you know how much it costs just to get a kid out of a womb? $10,000, right? And then you got to feed the kid every day. (coughs) And he's got glasses, which he scratches all the time. He's got accommodating osteotropia, which means he's got to have surgery on that. He's got to do all these different MRIs with that. Bro, you you haven't helped at all. (laughs) Like, you've made my life more difficult. You've cost me a lot more. I get scared to death every time I'm around you because I don't know. I don't run into the street, right? Like, but you ask me why I love you? It's simple, because you're my son. And I don't know that I have another answer to that. There's not, a, there's not like a reason. You can't search a father's heart and find out why he loves his son as if there's some kind of transactional relationship. It's covenantal. Why do I love Brady? Because he's mine. Because I choose to love him. Because you couldn't stop me from loving him. Because there is, as Romans 8, 30 and 39 says, there is neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor th- demons, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor death, nor anything else in all creation that can separate me from the love of my Father, which is through Christ Jesus our Lord. Why did God do this? Because he loves you. God demonstrated his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now your last question is this. It finishes the gospel. What do I do now? How do I receive it? How do I ask him to drink it? How do I become his son? How do I become his daughter? How do I move from object of wrath to object of his love? Last place you're gonna turn is how we're gonna end the night. Romans 10, verse nine through 10. Turn with me there as we finalize this conversation. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10. You guys got it? This is important. I want you to see this. You want to read it for you? I'll read it to you. It's like a, it's kind of fun. It says this. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be 
saved. Listen, you didn't hear any parentheticals in there. You didn't hear any, there's no buts, there's no ifs, there's, no, there's nothing. There's a simple, pragmatic answer to the question, what must I do to be saved? If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Okay? This is why this is important. This is important because of the response, the way that we receive what Christ has done and we become his children through adoption, Romans 8.15 says, is that we say, it's kind of, it's twofold. Number one is this. I believe, you say in your heart, I believe, Jesus, that when you died on the cross 2,000 years ago, when you drank the cup of wrath on that cross, when you experienced the forsakenness of God, when you were tortured and beat and crucified, I recognize the reason you did that is because I'm a sinner. I recognize that that was you paying the lofty tab that my life had racked up. I recognize that when you died and were buried, you took my sin and killed it. And I also recognize that when you overcame the grave and you came back to life on the third day, that you proved with your own life you have the power to make dead things live again. And I'm with you because when I die, I will be resurrected with you in heaven forever. You believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, but then it also says you confess with your mouth that he is Lord, which means from now on, if you want to turn your life over to Jesus, you say, God, from here on out, you are God and I am not. You are king and I am not. I've committed treason against you by saying, I'm the king of my own universe, but not anymore, God. I follow your will. I follow your ways. Does that mean as soon as you become a follower of Jesus, you don't make any more mistakes? No, guys, I gotta tell you, I follow Jesus, I'm his son, I'm going to heaven when I die, and I know I am. Do you know how much I mess up? All the time. Like, it's like a constant thing. But <coughs> the difference is, now that I'm a child of God, my sin has already been paid by the cross. My cup isn't getting any fuller for me to drink because Jesus has already drank it on the cross for me. And how do I live in response to that? I live in submission to him for the rest of my life. That's what Romans 12 says. Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of what God's done for us, offer your bodies living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God for the rest of our lives. Here's what I'm gonna do. That's the gospel, okay? Didn't sugarcoat it, not trying to overcomplicate it. You read it from the text yourself. Here's what it means to receive the work of Jesus on the cross. I believe there's a God. I know that I've sinned. That sin has cost me hell. God demonstrated his love for me in this. He died in my place. He didn't just take my sin. He also gave me his perfection. He didn't just take away my sin. He gave me his righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He became sin. He became me. He became sin, though he wasn't sinful, so that I could become righteousness, though I'm not righteous. You see the trade there? God paid the great price, but his life still had earned salvation. If the wages of sin is death, then what's the wage of perfection? Life. So when Jesus died on that cross, he still had earned eternal life by his life. And I had earned death by mine. And we switched places. And I'm sitting here clothed in his righteousness, holding his eternal life going, you did this for me? 
The only proper response to looking over at Jesus paying the price of execution in hell for us on the cross while we hold his robes of righteousness and eternal life, the only proper explanation, the only proper response when you sit here and realize what God's done for you is to go, I'm gonna live for you forever. I'm gonna worship your holy name. I do not get why you love me this much, but I am gonna love you for the rest of my life in return. And it's not even gonna be enough, but you are my God and I am your child from here on out. Here's what I'm gonna ask you to do. I'm gonna say a prayer here in a minute. And if you presently understand of your own condition that your cup still sits in front of you, you've never given your life to Jesus, you've never asked him to take your sin away, you've never asked him to pay the penalty for your sin, you've never received his work on the cross on your behalf, and you've never surrendered your life and said, God, you are God now and I am not, then I'm gonna give you the opportunity tonight as I pray for you to pray along with me. And if for the first time you wanna give your life to Jesus and receive what he has done for you on the cross and pass your cup of wrath over to him and say, because of your deep love, you're gonna drink my wrath, I don't get it, but I'm gonna live for you. Then I'm gonna ask you to do that for the first time tonight. And then after we get done praying, I'm gonna ask that if you said that prayer for the first time, I'm gonna ask you to stand up when I tell you. The reason I'm gonna ask you to stand up is because the Christian faith while it's a personal relationship, it's a public faith. This nonsense of my relationship with Jesus, or it's a, everything's private. It's, show me in scripture where a relationship with Jesus is private. It should affect every part of your life. Everything about you should change from the inside out because the Holy Spirit lives in you now. So I'm gonna ask you to stand up at that time. <clears throat> if you wanna receive what Jesus has done for you in your life for the first time, would you pray with me? God, we come before you after a week of seeking truth, of learning on night one that you're a God who is present, but that because of your presence and because of your justice, we sit in one of two positions. We are either children of yours who have given our life to you, or we are enemies of yours holding our cup of wrath in our hands still. We looked at the truth of your scriptures. We looked at the reality of what following you looks like. We looked at what sin has cost us and the hell that awaits anyone who rebels against you. But God, we also have heard the good news. We have heard the response to our bad case. We have seen the plan to bring people who are enemies and turn them into children. And God, for some of us tonight, we want to, for the first time, surrender our life over to you, to repent of our sin and to turn to you. And God, for those of us who wanna do that tonight for the first time, God, we're gonna pray this prayer together in our hearts. Father, you are good and I am not and I have sinned against you and that sin is deserving of hell and I recognize that. But Lord, your scriptures are true and what it says in the Bible is that if I give my sin to you, and I receive what you have done, and I declare that you are Lord, and I believe that you were crucified, died, and resurrected, and I trust that you paid the price for my sins on that cross, that I can be saved. And God, while I still don't understand why you would love a sinner like me, an enemy like me, and, and, and someone who's rebelled against you, I can't even fathom why you would care about me that much, but your scripture says that you do. And so I trust in that tonight for the first time. 
God, I give you my brokenness. I give you my sin. I give you my rebellion. I'm sorry for what I've done. And God, this cup of wrath that was meant to me, meant for me, I should drink it. But I'm handing it to you tonight and I'm asking you to drink it for me. And I believe that when you died on the cross, that's exactly what you did. And then when you came back to life, you proved that you have the power to make dead things live again. God, I trust in you now. I am no longer God, but you are God. I give you my sin and I receive your perfection. Thank you for loving me that much. Do you need me to pray? Amen. If tonight, if tonight you said that prayer for the first time, you passed that cup across the table for the first time, you received the work of Jesus in your life for the first time, I'm gonna ask you on the count of three to stand up. One, two, three, stand up. You guys can sit down. In the Bible, I want to make one thing clear to those of you who just stood. The reason we have you stand is twofold. It's one, because Christianity is a public faith. And secondly, the reason that we have you stand is because it's important for us who have felt something stirring in our hearts to give an answer for what's going on. So here's what we're going to do with this chapel is we're going to leave it open and we're going to allow you to stay in here. And if you stood up, we're going to ask you just to stay behind for a little bit. And here's what your counselor, here's what your leader is going to do. They're going to walk up to you and they're just going to ask you a simple question. Why did you stay behind? So something that we can talk about. Some of you stood, but you're still full of questions that you want answered. And that's okay. Christianity is full of questions. And the, the response that we're going to give tonight is we're gonna leave this room open for all of, even if you didn't stand up, but you go, I got some questions, I got some business that I gotta do with God, I'm not ready to get out of here yet, I, got, I have some stuff that I wanna get done. Nothing in camp is gonna be open for a while. You're not gonna miss out on anything. This place is gonna become a sacred ground for you to have those conversations, to interact with your youth pastors, to interact with your leaders, to interact with your counselors. Because the decision to follow Jesus, to receive what he's done for you on the cross is the biggest one of your life. And it doesn't make your life easier. It makes it phenomenally more complex and a lot of times much more difficult. But I promise you it's worth it. Because for some of us tonight is the first time the God of the universe looked down on us, not as enemies, but as his children. Which means that for some of us, for the first time tonight, as your head hits your pillow, you go to bed tonight as a child of the living God and not as an enemy object of God's wrath. That's the reality of surrendering your life to Jesus. That's the transition that's made. That's the substitution that was paid for on the cross that we who are in him can be confident and not afraid of death anymore because we know that our Redeemer lives and he has the power to make dead things live again. So what I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna pray. I'm just gonna pray that God would stir our hearts. He would be in our conversations. And then when I say amen, what I'm gonna ask is that those of you who, Harry, am I, am I okay? Okay. <clears throat> I'm gonna ask those of you who did stand up to stay seated, and it's not just those. If you're sitting here and you're like, I wish I would've stood up, or, or I do have more questions, or I wanna do some business, God, you just stay put. And all week, I've asked the same thing, is for you guys to respond as adults. And so what I'm gonna ask you to do, if you go, hey, I'm either not ready for this, or you know, I, I have surrendered my life to Jesus. I am a follower of God, I am God's child. And I don't know that I necessarily have any business to do with God tonight that I haven't been doing all along, and, and so I'm okay. And I, and I, I don't, 
feel any need that I need to stay back. I'm gonna ask you then in maturity to exit in a discipline of silence quietly to respect those who are staying back who have questions. Because if you are a follower of God, you know that there was a night where you stood up and you said something and you made that profession of faith too and how important that was in your life. I'm asking you to respect what's happened here tonight by leaving that in silence. We all know our assignment? Let's pray. God, give us clarity of mind. Give us a boldness to ask tough questions, a boldness to be real with ourselves, be real with our youth pastors, be real with our leaders, to confront the deepest parts of our brokenness and deepest parts of our sin that only you know about. We thank you for loving us, for taking away our sin, and for whatever you're doing in the hearts of these students this week, because to you be the glory. Jamie, pray. Amen. You can go ahead and leave if you don't need to stay. If not, stay seated.